0: Hi everyone, welcome to our latest episode. I am Vivian Ho, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse podcast. Today we have two amazing founders of Unite Us, Daniel Brillman and Taylor Justice. Unite Us is an outcome focused technology company that builds coordinated care networks of health and social service providers. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation spanning leaders across the healthcare ecosystem. We are super excited to cover their initiatives improving social determinants of health, also known as SDOH, and how they're supporting their partners and community on the front lines of the COVID-19 public health crisis. Based out of New York, Unite Us has raised a total of $45 million after their latest series, B Round, last March, led by prominent healthcare investor Oak HCFT and joined by leading investors such as Define Ventures and Town Hall Ventures. Welcome, Dan and Taylor. We're excited to have you both join us on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having
0: us. Awesome. So before we dive into your journeys at Unite Us, we'd like to first ask, What did
1: you want to be when you grew up? This is Dan. I wanted to be an astronaut and I still do today, uh, but (laughs) that's what I've wanted to be for for many, many years. And I'm sure we'll get into the story about our military backgrounds um, as well and our respective roles, but definitely wanted to be an astronaut and head to space.
2: Yeah, this is Taylor. I grew up in Kentucky, so basketball was life and I wanted to be an NBA basketball player. Um, Ended up moving to Florida and was introduced to football, and those my aspirations changed a little bit. But it was around professional athletics.
0: Awesome. Did you play football in college?
2: I did. I played. Uh, I played football
1: at West Point.
0: Impressive. Both of you served in the military before Unite Us. Can you tell us about your respective roles before starting Unite Us?
1: Yep. So this uh, Dan, I started in the Air Force around 2008, um, and. But, you know, before that, the reason I, I did it, I was flying uh, for fun at the Yale New Haven Airport. As a, I went to Yale undergrad and uh, had an instructor who was um, in the military and pointed me towards the Air Force Reserves. Um, so I've been a pilot in the Air Force Reserves for now almost 13 years. So I still am in today. And I fly KC-10s mostly. Um, and I've also transitioned um, into a role in Defense Innovation Unit, which is the investing in um, commercial technology into the DOD for uh, as my reserve job as well. So been doing that for a long time, deployed to the Middle East several times, and, and that's also you know, tangentially how we got started as well, which we'll get into in a second.
2: Yeah, and for myself, you know, I went and played football at, at West Point. So uh, after the Military Academy, you have a five-year active duty commitment, three years in active reserve. I selected to become an infantry officer in the Army and moved to Fort Benning, spent my time there. Uh, unfortunately, was was medically discharged, which kind of helped spur the idea uh, or identify the the pain points of active duty military transitioning uh, into the quote-unquote civilian sector. Ended up moving to, to Philadelphia and got involved with a, a veteran nonprofit organization there that was helping people transition. So far as the journey of starting the company, Dan and I both had experiences from the military or transitioning from the military where it wasn't as efficient as it should have been. Connecting with the VA, finding a new job, finding a place to live. And I got involved uh, with this veteran nonprofit um, in Philadelphia as a volunteer, And really saw firsthand that vulnerable individuals, vulnerable families that were dealing with multiple needs at a given time, there wasn't a great way for the organizations that were providing services, say that person had multiple needs at a given time, it wasn't a great way for those organizations to communicate with each other. Um, And so I was kind of leveraging this with Excel sheets and felt like this is a problem that needs to be solved.
0: That makes a lot of sense. How did you guys meet? Were you friends first? Were you looking for a co-founder when you met?
1: The great story is that I was in Business School of Columbia a couple of classes earlier than Taylor, and he was looking at business schools, and there's a, a veteran and military kind of group that connects you with people who are applying, and I reached out to him randomly to, to support him through through that journey, uh, and at the same time, I was writing a paper about the fragmentation of services, both health and social, and how we get them together In a a coordinated fashion, Taylor was, as as he mentioned, doing this on the ground and seeing it in, in real life. And I was experiencing veterans that I served with asking me those types of questions and how to access all these different services and couldn't help them. So we talked for several hours and not so much about Columbia. He obviously mm-hmm. got in and uh, graduated a couple of years after, but we really talked about this problem and then met for breakfast, talked for, for many hours after that about actually solving this problem. And I was lucky enough to, to be working in, in ventures, kind of how, how you kind of incubate this stuff and really got it off the ground starting in you know the latter part of uh, in 2013. Awesome. You've
0: come really far since then. Company has obviously been leading the charge on social determinants of health. At Wharton, in our healthcare program, we learned that social determinants of health drive up to 80% of health outcomes. I'd love to hear from your perspective on the leading edge of technology innovation here, what does social determinants of health mean to Unite Us? And for those who are unfamiliar with Unite Us, what is the problem that you solve today?
1: At the end of the day, people have multiple needs at different parts of their life, whether it's talking about vulnerable populations or specific populations like veterans or targeted populations, we really believe that there should be a supply chain that connects all of these organizations together that provide all these different types of services. And really connecting these organizations together electronically, banding them together like programmatically, building trust between these organizations is really what we're here to do and what, how it's been done before is really for the patient or the client to navigate themselves through healthcare services, government services, and social services all separately. And even in between in within those different silos, having to navigate each type of of service. And so for us, getting the supply together in a coordinated fashion that can effectively share patient data across these different industries, and most importantly, tracking the outcomes. That's really the biggest problem that we solve today is how do we know what happened after that client or that patient left the four walls of any organization? And so for us, we're that glue that brings these organizations together so that we're standardizing how we communicate with each other. And most importantly, we're surrounding these clients who are in need and removing the frustrating navigation for them across all these different organizations.
2: To that point, every human has basic elements that they need to survive. You need food in your belly, having a roof over your head, uh, having a, a, a way to make income. Everyone has those Basic needs that need to be solved for. It's just in certain communities, based on your socioeconomic status, based on your geography or your zip code, sometimes that's harder to have access to. And so we saw a gap in how people were connecting to services in their community because human and social service providers weren't put at the same priority level as healthcare. And when you look at the healthcare landscape, you have these clinical care coordination networks where it's easy to connect a, a hospital with a specialist. Or a specialist with primary care that doesn't exist within human and social services. So we wanted to extend that clinical care coordination network out into the community so that now we can look at people holistically, not just from a clinical lens, but also look at their non-clinical lens. Do they have that roof over their head? Do they have uh, access to, to food? Do they have access to employment opportunities? And how do we help galvanize a community together where we're not just kind of solving for individual programmatic needs. We're solving needs holistically for an individual or their family. And so we saw the need from a social determinants of health perspective to really fill a void that existed because human and social service providers usually aren't leveraging sophisticated technology platforms. A lot of them are using Excel sheets or pen and paper or have wall full of brochures of how they make referrals. And it's a very manual process. And we're trying to bring that sector into the 21st century where you have very, very smart people that aren't operating at the top of their license because they have to they have to navigate a manual process in a fragmented landscape. We want to make that easier for those service providers of health and human and social services so that they can operate to the top of their license. They're empowered with technology tools that connect them to appropriate complimentary services in their community and ultimately make people and communities healthier.
0: I can imagine the very beginning, it must have been very hard to put everything from the manual process that it was to a technology platform. Can you talk about how that process was like? And I understand you started with working with the VA and understanding social services for military, but what was that process like in the very beginning when you had to ramp all these community organizations on?
1: I think the biggest thing that we focused on was inclusivity of all these organizations together to build the solution of what we call the network and what we saw in the marketplace and still see today was and, and how people were, were trying to refer was using kind of these yellow pages or these lists of services right and there mm-hmm. they had these brochures or even electronic you know yellow pages and they would print out or hand the client information but you don't know didn't know what happened outside the four walls so for us we had to bring these organizations together to agree on a common standard of how we're going to share information how we're gonna report back what an outcome means, um, and so building structured data and getting everyone to agree on a common standard across health and social services was really the first thing that we had to do. That in 2013, seven years ago, when technology was not where mm-hmm. it is in today of like use and comfortability, was it took a year to do that um, in right. New York City. Our first, you know, with about 40 organizations. But we knew it, it worked really well, and that network is still there today. It's now 100-plus organizations. It's city-funded as an infrastructure to support veterans and their, and their families. And then as we build 5th and then our 10th and our 15th, right, we built this practice around how we do this quickly and also how we share learnings across communities. So at the end of the day, we had to work with the social service agencies and not take it just from a lens of healthcare which really is around you know, improving outcomes, improving health and lowering costs. How do mm-hmm. we integrate all these organizations together to agree on that at a community level, which was the most important and has made us extremely successful and just very different from everything that's out there, which is still siloed, right? If you still aren't connected around a single patient record, you can't effectively share data, you don't know what you're part of, then it's not a network, right? A network is all these organizations know what they're part of. They're, they're using the shared technology. They all agree to a common standard and service levels because that's what trust is. And so Mm -hmm. that's really the most important part of what has made us successful from the beginning and how we've thought about the business model.
0: You talk a lot about the outcomes piece, which I can imagine is how you measure success of the platform. I'm curious, like who pays for the actual outcomes and who are the different stakeholders involved?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the beauty of this model is, is really around public infrastructure. So we actually have Multiple, multiple different stakeholders that this is extremely important to, and that's payers, that's insurance companies, that's providers of care, healthcare um, providers, governments, both county and state governments, and also large human service agencies as well. But focusing on the kind of the first three, insurance companies and and providers and governments, uh, the beauty of the model is they all have a stake in this and they all want those outcomes too, right? So governments want this to be. Um, access the services and the outcomes delivered for their constituents, Um, whether that's at a county level or at a state level, the payers want this obviously for their members and how they serve their members and the outcomes that can be delivered for their members. And then providers, you know, they're seeing patients every day. And if they're taking on value-based care arrangements, um, taking risks, they want this for Mm -hmm. their patients as well. So everyone wants the patient better off. So that's the beauty of the model. And it's not just, um, you know, one or all or or the other, Um, it's really our bottle is around getting all three involved. And in a lot of the communities that we work in, we're incentivizing government payers and providers to all participate in this model of care and services. And they Mm -hmm. all are incentivized because it's faster. You have a more robust network. They're all participating. It's more economical. um, It's better of how we roll it all out. Um, so I think that's the beauty of of the work that we do, because it's inclusive of all the organizations that really get an ROI from uh, the outcomes that are delivered for their patients, members, or constituents.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as our healthcare system potentially shifts to more value-based, there's a lot more stakeholders that want to see these outcomes. And so in terms of your patient population, I can imagine you, those who are the most needy and most vulnerable are the ones that you serve most effectively. I'm curious, first question, I guess is, What does that breakdown look like? How many of your patients, if you can reveal, sort of are more on the Medicaid side or on the Medicare side and how many of your patients are more commercially insured?
1: So the way we started out just uh, from a business point of view is obviously started focusing on veterans seven years ago moved into Medicaid first in the sense of the focus on who wanted to implement this type of approach. And then we've moved into Medicare in the last 24 months, a lot more. And then commercial has been a really interesting topic. And in North Carolina, our work is catalyzed by Medicaid in the beginning, but we serve all populations and even commercial members that work for, and that may work for large corporations, but maybe hourly workers still have needs that are part of it but we're really in the in the focus obviously in, on governments around Medicaid and Medicare and then the remainder we're also serving in commercial members as well but a lot of what we're doing depending on the stakeholders that that come into the networks one may focus on Medicaid in a specific geography, a plan one may focus on Medicare, one may focus on their whole book of business, uh, commercial as well. So it really depends on on the market that we're coming into or working within, and also who's coming into that market and what population do they want to start with or grow into. But that's evolved over the of the lifetime of the business, which I think is also an important aspect of like focus on one population, like veterans, get it really right. Focus on Medicaid, get it really right, and be able to to replicate that business model and support other different t- Types of population.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of Unite Us being able to position themselves to serve the most vulnerable patients, could you tell us a specific example of how Unite Us serves a patient?
1: Absolutely. So we have two sides of the platform. We are for the majority B2B, right? So this is organizations communicating with each other, but we also extend this out as a with a patient view so they understand how to connect with the network. Although a cliche statement, this is a really a no wrong door approach. So wherever that patient shows up in with an organization inside of, that's part of the network or they're requesting services digitally, it's getting to a human. And a human may be part of what we call a hub organization who then disperses electronic referrals or they're showing up into a benefits provider. So let's say they walk into the, the benefits agency because they need SNAP or TANF or public benefits. They're not just going in there for public benefits because that's all they need, right? They have underlying housing issues, employment issues, maybe legal issues, family support issues, and that organization only provides one service. They're a government organization getting people on public subsidies, and they say, well, I don't provide those services. I'm part of this network, and I can get you to these services. Part of that process is you won't fall through the cracks because I will know what happened at that other organization because we're fully connected. You will know exactly where you're going to and don't have to go navigate yourself and get denied to these services. This is all happening because we're all connected together. So for the patient, it's really get into the network in whatever access point we provide, which is multiple, which makes it easier. And then for the patient, it's, it's the seamless navigation because they're only engaging with organizations where they're already gotten enrolled. They already got accepted because that's happened between, within the B2B software. And so that's really important to take the navigation and the frustration outside, you know, from the patient and making sure we provide that seamless engagement and communication between all these organizations who serve that same patient. Mm-hmm.
0: And given the you know COVID nineteen crisis we're currently facing, we're reminded more than ever of the need for a reliable public healthcare infrastructure that is coordinated. The virus sheds a lot of light on the immediacy of how people need to get tested and screened, and we see unemployment rates are skyrocketing. Haven't seen these numbers since two thousand eight, and we love to hear what the initiatives. Unite Us is undertaking to address COVID-19 in the short term to help, you know, all these people who now are going to need more food and need to apply for unemployment benefits?
2: Yeah, Dan and I have been on calls, I would say, the past two weeks straight with state government leaders, health plan, health system leaders, and I think everybody is, there's a growing recognition that there's a second crisis, and that's going to be the unprecedented stress on our human and social service system in the coming weeks and coming months. And so the need for sufficient public health infrastructure is paramount. And so our work right now specific to COVID is how do we create rapid response networks that will focus initially on emergency basic needs. So think of food, childcare, housing, and stand up those networks quickly and virtually in the communities with which we operate and even communities where we might not have had a presence before, but we can launch quickly. And so our focus is ensuring that organizations that are still open, because what we're seeing is around 46% of community-based resources either have limited services or have suspended services altogether. So the need to know who in the community is even open, who has capacity is significantly important when we're making these types of referrals. We can't just give people a list of resources and say, hey, go check these out. We have to be very, very targeted and in, in direct in this coordination effort. And so we're standing up these networks and in, in supporting communities where we already have networks established, but also going into new markets to stand up networks very quickly, of community-based organizations and human and social service providers that are raising their hand saying, hey, we're open, we can help, we could just use some assistance on the coordination front, and that's where Unitas jumps in.
1: So the other thing, you know, we're also doing is we work with thousands of, of organizations, both health and social around the country, and the ask that we hear over and over again is really this integrated approach, a community approach to addressing covid And it's not just what's happening inside the hospital, it's how do we know things are happening outside the hospital to avoid rushes into the hospital. So we've added different screenings, we've added an exposure assessment, capturing information that from where people live and work and play, which is around the community-based organizations, less so much inside the hospital, um, and providing an access point for patients as well where they may uh, not have had it. And that's really important as well to help empower the existing networks that we already have. Um, So really important that community-based organizations that the hospitals and the health systems and payers are, are asking, how do we connect with these outside agencies? Because they're much closer to people's homes and where this is all kind of bubbling up, not so much. It's almost too late with the hospitalization.
0: Yeah, given the new government package to address COVID-19 has just been passed, are there aspects of the bill that you think will be able to fund a lot of this infrastructure and the limitations on our current community services?
2: Yeah, I think it's twofold. It's not only just the infrastructure to make sure that these health human social service providers are connected, but it's also investing in capacity issues that we're gonna see in, in certain communities. Again, if we have limited number of community-based organizations that are up and operating, they're gonna run into capacity issues, be it, you know, maybe they don't have enough food supply and we need to pull that in from USDA for other services that need some additional capacity. I think the stimulus package will be a great injection of those resources. It's not the long-term solution per se, but it's a great start in the right direction, which I think, will spur the the change that's needed to bring those human and social service sectors in general to the same priority level as healthcare, but also to kind of change the landscape of long-term policy shifts, which we're seeing it already on the local level with our work in New Orleans, with LSU, state government, and a number of the different health systems there and and medical schools where they have a large number of volunteers, medical, uh, clinical volunteers, medical students, and, and things of that nature that are doing triage. And, you know, they have two paths. Is this a clinical triage or is this connecting to a social service triage? And with those limited resources available, again, it's super important to make sure that we're connecting a person with the best fit provider in their community that also has capacity. So the funding that's coming down is going to be able to inject and and, and reinforce that supply and really build the foundation that can continue to expand a long-term solution post-crisis when we start to get into those recovery efforts.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We see a lot of regulatory change being temporarily, or who knows if it's temporary, being implemented. And see a lot of guardrails such as the ones that are, it, were inhibiting healthcare innovation, such as telemedicine regulations, waiving co-pays on COVID-19 screening. A lot of these policies have been quickly implemented as a nation struggles. I'm wondering, in terms of these sort of regulations, what is your take on how long lasting this shift will be and what it means for social determinants of health?
1: Yeah, I
2: mean, I think from, from my perspective, from a policy standpoint, I think in all of the, the chaos and the obvious clinical response that's you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. I think there is a little bit of a silver lining here that will shed a light on maybe some of the policies that we had previously could have either been too stringent or weren't focused on interoperability or didn't allow uh, patients to freely move through the, the clinical landscape or even the human and social service landscape. I think we'll start to see policies that will really drive that interoperability. We've been talking about it for years, but there hasn't been that driving force that actually makes it happen. I think this could be it. And so I'm very optimistic that some of the, the near-term emergency response policies that have been implemented will be reinforced, again, post-crisis. Uh, obviously, we want to make sure people's information is secure, that we're not freely you know, sharing anything sensitive. And- making sure we're HIPAA compliant, FIPS and FERPA, and you pick your security acronym. But I think it will drive the need for collaboration. I think that is prior to the crisis, we always used to say the innovation in healthcare is collaboration. A lot of people try to build siloed fortresses and, and a lot of blocking of patient information and things of that nature. I think this will really drive the need for collaboration and to have that holistic system so that we know people aren't falling through the cracks.
0: Mm-hmm. And sort of shifting gears to more Unite Us um, and also you speaking of, you know, working with partners, congratulations on your partnership with CVS and Aetna and the new Garden Angel Program. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your partnership. It's really impressive that Unite Us today covers 65 networks across 35 states. I imagine CVS Aetna is a really great opportunity to sort of serve across the nation.
2: Yeah, we're really excited about the, the CVS Edna partnership. I think when you look at an organization that has a health plan coupled with retail and even moving into the, uh, the new marketplace, if you will, post-crisis, I think community, you know, we've always been hyper-focused on the community and with a, a retail organization like CVS that can have multiple touch points that have historically been, I'm gonna go maybe purchase goods or or I'm going to the pharmacy can continue to expand. So when I think of CVS health hubs and and them being kind of a a central point in in these communities, there's a great opportunity to bring together this clinical and non-clinical space where we can look at folks holistically. And so I think the CVS partnership and the team there, they're really making great strides to have a a strong focus on social determinants of health um, uh, and creating solutions that empower communities. Uh, which hasn't necessarily been the case for historic healthcare uh, entities. Um, but from a from a CVS where you have these brick and mortar locations that can flip and be these uh, epicenters, if you will, within local communities to connect to both clinical but more importantly, the non-clinical resources, it's super, super exciting. And so that that partnership and the scale of that organization across the country, I think it's 90% of the American population live within 20 miles of a, of a CVS location. They have a great opportunity to to impact and touch lives consistently, whereas, you know, the healthcare environment, how often are you actually going in to see your, your primary care doc or uh, healthcare? There's not that many touch points. It's just those touch points are very expensive. Whereas when we talk about social determinants of health and looking at the, the other 80% that impacts an individual's health and well-being, having those touch points and making sure people are connected to services whenever those needs arise, DVS is in a great position to impact um, um, those those individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and in terms of the long-term vision of Unis shifting sort of the healthcare spend that's typically in the clinical care setting to, um, you know, your community health clinics or Uh, you know, your CVS is around the block. I'm curious sort of how, what is your vision on that um, long-term?
1: Yeah, so where, you know, what we've done for for seven years so far is really back to that infrastructure. So you need a network and you need the connectivity, you need the standardized data tracking um, before you get into reimbursement and um, and then, you know, really the business around how do you reimburse, how do you invoice, how do you... um, build new business streams of revenue for social services that are um, traditionally philanthropic, right. And kind of grant funded uh, to do this thing or this thing. And so for us, we've been working really hard and, you know, to to replicate this across the country and we've done a really good job. We have obviously more states to go, but you need that network first. Um, And once you have that network, then you can work work with payers and at risk healthcare providers, folks that are taking on value-based, payments and saying, okay, the, you know, you want to solve these health economic problems for, for you. Um, and, and this is what it looks like for this population. And you want to focus on, you know, maternal and childhood health. You want to focus on social isolation. Um, and those are the types of things. Now you can actually build more narrow focus sets of, of interventions that specific members or patients um, can go through within that infrastructure, that network. Um, and so those are the exciting parts of really where the business is going um, and how we're supporting both our healthcare partners and the customers, but also mm-hmm. our customers of the social service agencies. And so that's really the biggest part of, of where we're we're going to see the, the growth of the company and where we're looking towards changing the industry, because at the end of the day, it's going to change policy and it's going to change how we think about what behavioral health looked like 30 years ago right? It was really separate than healthcare. And what we've Mm -hmm. done for social services in the last seven years is bring them much closer into an integrated approach. And now we're building the business and the transactions around that, um, Mm -hmm. that really tie them all together from a business sense. Um, And so we're already playing the bridge um, between, you know, both healthcare and social services as our staff, 100 plus public health experts build these networks, and they work in the communities and get these organizations on. And now it's a perfect response for us to help um, the social service agencies and the healthcare organizations get even closer together from a business standpoint.
0: Yeah, it sounds like Unite Us is super mission-driven. I love to talk about how your culture has been built as you have scaled so quickly, going from 50 to more than 150 employees in a year. How has your backgrounds influenced the culture at UIS?
1: Yeah, I mean, some would think just because we serve in the military, we run it like a military operation, but that is just not not the case. But we do carry (laughs) over really good principles um, of the military, like integrity. So our first kind of value is be a good human. Um, So really, we just bring really good people that are trusted, that come there with really good ideas that we uh, want them to have autonomy to, to, to bring up and also own. Um, so we carry those types of principles on. And the other part of it is is around a team. Um, Taylor and I early on really noticed that we could not do this ourselves um, in, in many different aspects. And we're good at some things, but we are definitely not good at all things. And so we needed to bring in people that were just better at us than all of these other things that we needed around how we build these networks and how we work with these agencies in the community how we're empathetic around their work and how we work with them deeply. And so that's why we have, you know, almost hundred plus people that are MPHs and MSWs, right? Those, those are the types of uh, folks that have built a practice around this that we can never do ourselves. Um, and we want people to really, you know, own it and think big. Um, and because at the end of the day, we haven't solved all the problems yet. And that's what our company is here to do. Um, And so we need new innovative ideas that continue to push this industry forward. And we need the smart people to be able to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. In terms of hiring, I can imagine a couple people listening are either in business school, are entering business school, or are just sort of looking to enter the healthcare tech industry. Are there specific roles or areas where you're looking to expand the next couple of months? Who should they reach out to if you're hiring?
2: Yeah, so... We are certainly hiring across the board. We tripled in size last year. We have the opportunity to do that again. We have (laughs) 80-plus recs open right now uh, that we are trying to hire for across the business. So when you think of our customer success team, uh, our our network development team, which is also known as sales, uh, our technology team, uh, some of the different product lines that we're going to be rolling out here in the very near future – uh, data is a big component of of where we're going as well. So eighty plus job recs, If you go to uniteus.com uh, uh, forward slash uh, careers, you'll see a whole list of them, um, mm-hmm. which funnels right into our our talent and recruiting team that is consistently going through interviews, setting up connections with the team, et cetera. So we are hiring across the board, and we're in that that hyper growth phase, and so we are we are eager for. Very talented, empathetic, impassionate, driven individuals that really want to go try to change the world together and rebuild what we're calling public health 2.0 uh, across the United States. It's a very, very interesting time for the country, but also for for the business. I think you know we're we're the leaders in the marketplace right now, and we're conti- and we want to continue to push the envelope. Uh, and so we want those folks that are also driven to come and push the envelope with us.
0: Yeah, sounds like a super inspiring place to work. I'd love to sort of wrap it up with some advice for MBAs and founders. In terms of MBAs, you've both attended Columbia Business School. If there's like one thing that you would remember or think that you've gained the most value from, what is a specific experience that you think has defined your success at Unite Us
1: Yeah, my favorite class that I remember always is business law. And so, as entrepreneurs and founders, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades and try to be good at everything, but not not possible. But you you have to have a a general understanding of, of certain things, which is why I think an MBA is is also, you know, really important and where you can gain different types of skills, right? You're either one day you're in the books on a P&L, and the other day you're talking about legal. Then you're talking about kind of HR and leadership. And then you're talking about negotiation. So the diversity of skill sets that you attain and maybe not, you know, expertise and, uh, and a doctorate in all of them. But I think those are the, the members I've had of getting those types of kind of foundational skills that I may not have had um, prior to that where I was strong in some things, but definitely needed to to work on in others. So from an entrepreneurial perspective, you know, the expectation, if you're starting a company or joining, you know, a company, it's, you startups really want people that have, you know, diverse skills and be able to think outside the box and be able to to bring in knowledge base that, that you may not have at the company. And obviously MBAs can, can bring that type of fortitude and, and thought process to the table.
0: Yeah. Taylor, do you have an example of a fun memory that you had at CBS, assuming you had fun?
2: <laughs> no, I had a blast at CBS. You know, one of my favorite courses. We had an entrepreneurial class where every class our professor would bring in an entrepreneur that had grown a company to scale and just hearing their stories and understanding that you don't always have it figured out and you have to trust your instincts and you have to think outside the box this isn't you know a math equation there isn't a blueprint on how to build a business because you're going to run into a bunch of different hurdles and speed bumps along the way it's it's how you react how you build your team how you build your culture that's going to set you up for, for success. And I think learning from other entrepreneurs that had had their battle scars and then being open and transparent about what they did wrong, what they did right, was very eye-opening to me that there isn't a blueprint. But if you have the passion and the will and the, the self-awareness to understand your weaknesses and find people that fill that out, you have, you're giving yourself the best shot to be successful.
0: That's super inspiring. And thank you for spending the time with us today on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much.